Welcome to the RE Podcast, the first dedicated RE podcast for students and teachers. Season 3, Episode 6, The One About Sex. My name is Louisa Jane Smith and this is the RE Podcast, the podcast for those of you who think RE is boring, which it is, and I'll prove it to you. You know what the first thing God ever said to humans was, right back in Genesis chapter 1? Be fruitful and increase in number. So no rules, no regulations, just a simple instruction to have sex. It is therefore interesting that since this point, Christianity has had a complicated relationship with sex. What I would like to explore in this episode is what the variety of religions offer us in terms of their teaching about sex, including who should have it, when, and for which purpose. Let's start with when you are allowed to have sex. In this country, the law states that all sex must be consensual and that you must be fully able to consent. If you are incapacitated by drink or drugs, then you are not able to fully consent. You cannot take part in any sexual activity before the age of 13. 13 to 15 year olds cannot have penetrative sex in mouth, anus and vagina, but can do other sexual acts. Anyone over the age of 16 cannot have any sexual contact with anyone aged 13 to 15. People who are over the age of 16 can have consensual sex with anyone aged over 16. All these rules apply to heterosexual and homosexual sex. This has not always been the case. Up until 1967, you faced life imprisonment if you were a homosexual. However, from 1967, the law changed in that homosexuality was decriminalized for over-21s, still not equal to the laws for heterosexual sex. This means that people like Alan Turin, who cracked the Enigma Code, contributing significantly to our victory in World War II, was chemically castrated in 1958, leading to him committing suicide. It wasn't until 1994 that the age of consent lowered to 18 and then 16. From 1988 until 2003, Section 28 stated that teachers were not allowed to promote homosexuality. Gay and bisexual people were not allowed in the armed forces until the year 2000 and were not allowed to adopt children until 2002. In 2004, civil partnerships became allowed for gay people, but they didn't get the right to get married until 2013. Homophobia did not become illegal until 2008, over 50 years after it was decriminalized. There are still countries in the world today where gay marriage is banned, including parts of the US, and there are some countries where it is punishable by death. Most of this was because of our Christian heritage, and we will come back to the Christian teachings on homosexuality later on in the episode. So while we have legal guidelines in this country on who can have sex, Christianity also has its own guidelines. Most Christians believe that sex should only take place within marriage and between a man and a woman. The reason they believe this is because in the Bible it says in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, that is why a man leaves his mother and father and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The phrase united to his wife is interpreted to mean get married and becoming one flesh means sex. So this verse gives the order and context of sex. Leave your parents, get married, then have sex. However, look at the first part of the verse. That is why. 
In other translations, it says, for this reason. So it suggests that there is a specific reason why a man and a woman should come together and have sex. As was said in the previous chapter, be fruitful and multiply. So for this reason, to procreate, a man and a woman should come together. It doesn't necessarily mean this is the only reason for two people to come together. However, the Catholic Church does believe this, and I will come back to that later. There is one other verse that specifically refers to sex before marriage, and that is in 1 Corinthians, the first letter that Paul wrote to the people in Corinth. And it says, But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion or burn with lust in other translations. This suggests that if you want to have sex, you need to get married. Later on, it says, if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, suggesting that you have sinned if you are not a virgin when you get married. However, virgin could mean unmarried woman rather than sexually pure. Therefore, if you are already married, then it is sinful to marry someone else. Any other verses surrounding sex seem to be about affairs, rape and sex during periods, and not specifically about sex before marriage. There are some Christians who view sex outside marriage as adultery. Therefore, any verse about adultery is actually referring to sex before marriage. There are, of course, advantages to keeping sex within marriage. And by this, I mean that if everybody only had sex within marriage, one, it would decrease the risk of STIs. Two, it would decrease the risk of unwanted pregnancies. Three, there would be no affairs. Four, it would decrease the number of incidents of rape. And five, there would be no sexual abuse of children. Also, I think for some people, waiting until marriage is the best option. They know that that person loves them and is committed to them, they feel safe, and they will never be used. However, the disadvantage of waiting until marriage to have sex are one, you rush into marriage before you are ready. Two, you may not be sexually compatible with the person you marry. Or three, your lack of experience means that you are uncomfortable having sex or even talking about it. And four, it often means that young people are not educated about sexual health because they are taught abstinence. Abstinence simply means you abstain from having sex, you do not have sex, and therefore keep their sexual experiences a secret and increase the risk of pregnancy or STIs. In the US, abstinence is quite a big thing. Abstinence means abstaining from or not having sex. There are organizations like True Love Waits and The Ring Thing, where teenagers pledge to wait until marriage to have sex. They often wear a ring on their wedding finger as a commitment to this. The organizations say that abstinence is the only way to save sex, but opposers to these organizations argue that they don't equip teenagers about protection and good sexual health. Within Christianity, there are differences between denominations in regards to their attitudes about sex. Denominations simply means different types of Christians like Protestants and Catholics. In the Catholic Church, they teach that sex is only for procreation. However, in the Protestant Church, sex is for procreation and pleasure. Due to verses in the Bible like, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again. There's also an entire book in the Bible which some people believe celebrates erotic love. It's called Song of Solomon. Solomon was the king of Israel after King David. He's become quite famous because of a night he spent with the Queen of Sheba, 
It says in the Bible that he gave her all her desire whatsoever she asked. She left satisfied. You can look it up in 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 10. Now, while this could be interpreted many ways, people think the songs of Solomon are poetry about this night. Other people think they are poems about God's love for Israel. I'll read you some passages and then you can decide for yourself. It starts by saying, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured out. Therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. It then says things like, Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I have taken off my robe, must I put it on again? I have washed my feet, must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening, my heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved. So for some Christians, sexual pleasure is part of what God has designed for humans. So what have we learned so far? Sex is designed by God for either just procreation or, for some Christians, pleasure and procreation. And for some Christians, they believe this should be done within marriage between a man and a woman. Let's look now at homosexuality. Within Christianity, there is every extreme of attitude towards homosexuality. At one extreme, there are churches like the Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas, founded by Fred Phelps. Their stance is very much of hatred. They regularly protest against homosexuality with signs like, God hates fags, plane crashes, God laughs, and thank God for dead soldiers. Essentially, they believe that anyone who dies in the army is being punished by God for allowing gay soldiers. There are also churches who, while they disagree with homosexuality, believe it's something that can be healed. Christian healing ministries believe that a homosexual can become a heterosexual and the homosexual orientation can be changed through prayer for inner healing by the power of the Holy Spirit. They believe that this is in accordance with what the scripture teaches. At the other extreme, there are gay churches all over the world, including in the UK and the US. There are also churches which are simply inclusive and welcome anyone in. You may remember my episode with the Reverend Steve Chalk, who leads an inclusive Baptist church, Oasis, in Waterloo, London, and is more than happy to have homosexuals in his congregation and to marry them. You might remember in the episode with the Catholic that we discussed the Pope's recent comments on homosexuality, because he has endorsed same-sex civil union and LGBTQ plus rights. Although he would not go so far as to say they should get married, he did say, who am I to judge gay people? Homosexual people have a right to be in a family. They are children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or be made miserable over it. Some Catholics believe this is against Catholic teaching. Other Catholics believe it hasn't gone far enough. So what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? Well, the verse that's often quoted is, homosexuality is an abomination. What the verse actually says is, do not lie with a man as with a woman, as it is an abomination. There are lots of ways we could interpret this. Most Christians take it on face value and say that therefore homosexuality is wrong. However, some scholars think it means penetrative sex, as that is how you have sex with a woman. 
But men can perform other sexual acts with each other. Other people think it means that heterosexual men shouldn't have sex with other men. Something that's even more specific than that and is referring to molestation. The death penalty, stated as the punishment in the Old Testament, is probably more widely palatable for molestation than it is for loving, consensual gay sex. Most of the other verses about homosexuality in the Old Testament are clearly referencing homosexual men that are having sex with men, or forced sex, or male prostitution. There is nothing in the Old Testament about women having sex with each other. In the New Testament, there are a few verses about it. it says this, even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. Again, this could mean heterosexual women having sex with women, which is against their nature. It continues saying, And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they have suffered within themselves the penalty they deserve. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So is this about gay men who are having loving relationships with each other? Or is this about heterosexual men who have sex with other men and men who do shameful things on a par with hate and deception? What is interesting is the phrase that says they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserve. There was a big movement in the 80s and 90s from right-wing Christians saying that HIV is what the Bible was referring to here. However, most Christians do not believe that. So the Bible continues, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. So here, homosexuality is put in a list with prostitutes, thieves, abusers, etc. Something to note here is that the New Testament letters that these verses come from were written by Paul in Greek. The original Greek word which has been translated into homosexuality is arsenokoitai. Arson means men and koitai means beds. It is actually a word that Paul made up. So what could men do in bed that was on a par with abuse and adultery? Maybe it's have consensual sex or maybe it's sexual abuse in beds. Hey parents. Yeah, you. Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you. And for us. As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. 
In Greek and Roman cultures, it was prevalent for powerful men to use slaves for sexual gratification. So you decide. Then it continues. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Again, it's sexual immorality that is mentioned, of which there are many examples. Rape, abuse, affairs, and then this word arsenokoitai, to practice homosexuality, men in beds, which could mean consensual gay sex, or it could mean people who use their beds to abuse people. The Greek word for homosexuality today is philomophilia, and not arsenokoitai. So what do we learn? So maybe it's that the natural way to have sex is between a man and a woman. However, it could just mean that some people are naturally heterosexual and therefore should not have same-sex relationships. Men doing shameful things with other men doesn't necessarily mean consensual loving sex. And if you see the context in which this is always mentioned, it's always in a list of things like deception and hate and abuse. This therefore would be more likely to be abusive sex rather than consensual sex. Now, most people say that Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality. I don't necessarily think that means he definitely agreed with it. But there is this really interesting story in the Bible which suggests that Jesus heals a gay person. Both Matthew and Luke tell us how a centurion asked Jesus to heal a younger man, referred to in the original Greek as his pay, P-A-I-S. The word was commonly used for the younger partner in a same-sex relationship, but could also mean just boy or servant or slave. In recent years, experts have concluded that the centurion was in a homosexual relationship with the slave because it specifically mentions that the servant was dear to the Roman. At no point in the story did Jesus make any comment on their relationship as he did when he encountered a woman who was committing adultery, to whom he said to her, go and sin no more. Now, we don't want to extrapolate by omission. And all that means is just because Jesus didn't say anything in judgment that he therefore must accept it. But I think it's a relevant story to this discussion. I think the amount of space given in the Bible to sex is disproportional to the amount of time spent teaching about it. I.e., people talk a lot about it, people teach a lot about it, but it doesn't actually mention it that many times in the Bible. I do think, though, that there are other things that maybe God would much rather we focus on if we look at how much time is given to it in the Bible. And this is love. It's one of the most talked about things in the Bible, whether it's God's love for us or our love for God or our love for others. I'll come back to this point at the end of the podcast. So what do other religions say? In the Quran, Surah 2433, it says that you need to wait until you are married to have sex. It says, let those who find not the wherewithal for marriage keep themselves chaste until God gives them the means. Chaste means pure, i.e. without sex. So basically, just wait until God allows you to get married before you have sex. But it also says that if they can't wait until then, God is merciful to them. The other thing is that in the Quran, men are allowed to marry more than one wife, but only for the financial benefit of the family and only if each wife is treated equally. 
In regards to homosexuality, verses that do seem to forbid lewdness between men and women are generally talking about adultery. There is some evidence that lesbianism was actually promoted in some ancient Muslim cultures as a cure for obesity. Buddhist monks take a vow of celibacy, but lay Buddhists, i.e. Buddhists that are not monks, have a variety of views on sex and homosexuality. It is actually thought to be a distraction to reaching enlightenment, but it's not forbidden. Compassion is essential to Buddhism, so this would extend to sex too. In Sikhi, it's not mentioned by any of the Sikh gurus, yet they would have known about the LGBTQIA plus people and would have had hijras around who were intersex people and transgender people that were performers and who are still prevalent at weddings and ceremonies in India today. There are always a variety of views within any belief system, but it's certainly not condemned within the official teaching of Sikhi. In Santanam Dharma, they have very liberal attitudes on both sex and homosexuality. They believe they are all Atma. Atma is formless, and so therefore sexuality and gender are maya, illusions. Nothing worth being fixated on, but necessary to experience life in its entirety. They actually recognize three genders, male, female, and a third being fluid on the spectrum of masculinity and femininity. And they have very high regard for the trans community. It's considered auspicious for the trans community to attend weddings and dance. However, in India, the trans community is one of the worst treated. And a big factor for that is that the Victorian laws that came in with colonization vilified this community. There is a really lovely story from Santanam Dharma of Rama and his relationship with the trans community. When Rama left for the forest for exile, the population of his kingdom, Ayodhya, came to see him off and were distraught by him leaving. One of the final things he said was, men go back to work, women go back to tending your homes. And he went into the forest. When he came back, 14 years later, the first people he met were from the third gender, trans in this case. They had stayed outside of his palace waiting for him because they were given no instruction. As a result of their devotion, he blessed them, saying that in future generations, people will consider it a blessing to have them at their special occasions, as he had found it a blessing to receive their devotion at his homecoming. It's a very beautiful story. In order to conclude, I would like to come back to the idea of love. In the New Testament, right alongside the verses about sex, is one of the most beautiful passages about love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so Paul's first letter to the people in Corinth, chapter 13, it was a long letter, is often read out at marriages. You'll be able to see why. I'm only going to read parts of it because it's quite long. If I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So I think we should spend more time focusing on how to love rather than on who is having free consensual sex with who. My name is Louisa Jane Smith. This has been the RE Podcast. 
the podcast for those of you who think Ari is boring, which it is. I just proved it to you. But thank you so much for listening to me bore the life out of you.